Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Before we get started with today's episode, I have a couple of shout outs I'd like to give. First, I want to thank the wonderful ladies at Pink Collar, Rachel and Natalie, for their support and promotion of our show on Instagram. I highly recommend their podcast if you love true crime, and I hope you will all check it out. Second, I want to thank my sister-in-law, my niece, and my boyfriend for their extra support and encouragement in getting this podcast up and running. I couldn't have created the show without you guys, and I'm so grateful for all the love and support you've given me. Today's episode examines the life and crimes of Jerry Brudos, aka the Lust Killer or Shoe Fetish Slayer. For this episode, I'm adding an extra cautionary warning. The crimes I'll be discussing throughout this episode are extremely graphic and may be upsetting to some listeners. I advise extreme caution before continuing with this episode. Jerome Henry Brudos, aka Jerry, was born on January 31st, 1939 in Webster, South Dakota. His father, Henry Brudos, had trouble holding down a job due to his temper, and because of this, Henry ended up moving the family from South Dakota to Oregon. Jerry's mother favored his older brother, Larry, from the time Jerry was young through his adulthood. Jerry's mother often dressed him up like a girl when he was younger because she was disappointed he was born a boy. As you can imagine, this led to a troubled relationship between the two. When Jerry was five years old, he found a pair of high heels in a junkyard. His mother never wore high heels, so Jerry was captivated by the patent leather open-toed shoes with their decorative rhinestones. Jerry decided to bring the shoes home, and he wore them around the house. His mother caught him and humiliated him for wearing the shoes, which I find kind of odd given that she was okay dressing him up like a girl, but whatever. 
She destroyed the shoes in front of Jerry as an added form of punishment. This incident may not have started Jerry's shoe fetish, but at the very least, it contributed to it. Women's shoes became forbidden to him. This only increased their arousal, and Jerry eventually linked his sexual gratification to women's shoes. In the first grade, Jerry stole a pair of shoes from his teacher. He was extremely embarrassed when he got caught, but he didn't actually get into any trouble for stealing the shoes. When his teacher asked him why he stole the shoes, Jerry just ran away from her without an explanation. Jerry suffered from headaches throughout his childhood, which contributed to his poor grades in school. During puberty, Jerry's fantasies began to evolve to include kidnapping women and holding them against their will. When Jerry was 16, the family moved to the Corvallis area, which is about an hour and 20 minutes south of Portland. Jerry began stealing women's underwear off of clotheslines. Around this time, Jerry lured a female neighbor to his house under the promise that he would get back her stolen underwear. He left the girl in the living room, and when he returned, he was wearing a mask and holding a knife. He held the knife to the girl's throat and forced her to remove her clothes before taking naked pictures of her. Jerry then left the room. The young girl tried to flee, but Jerry stopped her, claiming a masked man locked him in the barn before he was able to escape. Okay, Jerry. The girl didn't believe Jerry's story, and I'm not sure there's anyone who would believe that story. But for some reason, she never reported the incident to the police. Jerry's next victim was a 17-year-old girl he offered a ride home. But instead of taking her home, Jerry drove her to a deserted farmhouse. He told her to take off her clothes, and when she refused, Jerry began beating her. A couple driving by saw Jerry beating this girl, and they called the police. Jerry was arrested for assault and battery. When the police went to Jerry's house and searched his room after he was arrested, they found women's shoes and underwear, as well as the naked pictures Jerry took of his neighbor. But for some reason, Jerry didn't receive any jail time for the assault and battery. Instead, he was sent to the state hospital. While undergoing evaluation, Jerry was able to fool the psychologists by acting embarrassed and using other psychological games. The doctors who examined Jerry felt he would grow out of his fetishes and that he didn't really take them too seriously. Jerry was diagnosed as a borderline schizophrenic. He spent nine months in the state hospital and then he returned home. After graduating high school, Jerry was unable to find a job, so he decided to enlist in the Army at age 20. While stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey Bay, California, Jerry told the Army psychiatrist about his fetishes and fantasies. Soon after, in 1959, Jerry was discharged from the Army due to his quote-unquote bizarre obsessions. Jerry returned home to Corvallis to live with his parents. Jerry had to sleep in a shed in the backyard as his older brother Larry was given the spare bedroom in their parents' home. Jerry enrolled at Oregon State University to get his FCC license. While he was in school, he was caught by OSU officials with a large collection of women's clothing, but because there was no evidence of a crime, Jerry was let go and he couldn't be charged with anything. Soon after obtaining his FCC license, Jerry got a job as an engineer for a Corvallis radio station. It was while he was working there that he would meet his future wife, Darcy. Darcy was a quiet and shy girl, but she did date around frequently. Initially, she was unimpressed with Jerry, 
But eventually, probably because she was just 17, she became impressed with Jerry's job as an engineer and thought he was successful, aka she thought he had money. Darcy's parents didn't like Jerry, which only made him even more attractive to Darcy. For some reason, they became convinced that if Darcy got pregnant, Darcy's parents would let her marry Jerry. So of course, Darcy became pregnant and the two got married. Their first child, a daughter named Megan, was born in 1962. The family moved around a lot due to Jerry's inability to maintain steady work, just like his dad had done when he was growing up. Their second child, a son named Brian, was born in 1967. Darcy kept Jerry out of the delivery room when Brian was born, claiming she didn't want Jerry to be jealous of the attention the doctor was giving her. Jerry felt compelled to act out in order to deal with his hurt feelings at being excluded from the birth of his son. Before this incident, Jerry was able to keep his fetishes at bay by having Darcy do housework in nothing but high heels. Now, he felt he was forced to act on those fetishes. So after the birth of Brian, Jerry stalked a woman, broke into her apartment, rifled through her clothes, and attempted to steal her shoes. But at some point, the woman actually woke up and Jerry strangled her, then raped her. Then he left, but not before taking her shoes as a trophy. At the same time that this event occurred, Jerry was working as an electrician in the Portland area. One day, he was electrocuted at work, receiving a 480-volt shock. This left Jerry dazed and disoriented, and he suffered minor injuries. While it's not clear what effect this event had on Jerry, some experts have theorized it may have affected his mental capacities, causing him to act on his fantasies more frequently and in a more violent way. In January 1968, Linda Slauson was a 19-year-old traveling saleswoman who went door-to-door selling encyclopedias. She was the fourth of six children and lived with her mother Mildred, her brother David, and her sisters Barbara and Teresa in Aloha, Oregon, a suburb just outside of Portland. On the evening of January 26, 1968, Linda was on her way to a sales call. She had the specific address written down on a piece of paper, but because of the rain that night, the address got smudged and was illegible. She was looking for the correct house number when she came across Jerry, who was out in his front yard. Jerry told Linda he was interested in buying a set of encyclopedias for his kids, and he escorted Linda into his home. Once inside, Jerry convinced Linda that they should go down to his basement workshop where it would be quieter because his kids would be upstairs. Once down in the basement, Jerry sat Linda down on a stool. Then he hit her on the back of the head with a wooden board. Linda was knocked unconscious and fell off the stool, but the blow to the head didn't immediately kill her. Jerry strangled Linda with his bare hands, then played with Linda's body like a doll, dressing her up in different undergarments and shoes. He took a break at some point to eat dinner with his family. When he returned, he masturbated over Linda's body. He then used a hacksaw to cut off Linda's left foot and stashed it in his basement freezer for future modeling. Jerry then disposed of the rest of Linda's body off the Wilsonville Bridge into the Willamette River. After Linda Slauson's murder, Jerry had a cooling off period of about 10 months. During that time, Jerry and his family moved from Portland to Salem. Their new home had a large garage on the property, which was off limits to everyone except Jerry. 
He told Darcy he would be using the garage as a dark room for his photography, and if she came in unannounced, she would ruin his photos. Jerry even installed an intercom system so he and Darcy could communicate about entering the garage. It was around this time, in the fall of 1968, that Darcy and Jerry's marriage became strained. Darcy later described a particular incident after they moved to Salem when Jerry came out into the living room wearing a bra, girdle, stockings, and black high heels. At the time, Darcy nervously laughed off Jerry's behavior, but later she said she was extremely puzzled by the event. As a result, Darcy began spending a lot of time away from home, which left Jerry with even more opportunities to act on his fantasies. In November 1968, Jan Whitney, a 23-year-old student at the University of Oregon, was traveling home after spending some time with a friend. Jan was pulled off along Interstate 5 near the city of Albany after she began experiencing car trouble. Two men had already stopped to help Jan, but when Jerry came upon the scene, he told Jan he'd fix her car. He just had to grab his tools in Salem. This was about a 25-minute drive from where they were. Jerry then drove Jan and the two men from the area, but first dropped off the men prior to taking Jan to his house. When they arrived at Jerry's house, Jerry strangled Jan from the backseat of his car with a leather strap, then raped her while she was dying in the front seat. Jerry hung Jan's naked body in his garage and continuously assaulted her. Jerry sliced off one of Jan's breasts and mounted it in his workshop as a trophy. Two days after Jan disappeared, Jerry and his family went to visit relatives for the Thanksgiving holiday. While they were gone, a car crashed into Jerry's garage, damaging it and putting a hole in the outside wall. Police investigated the scene, but they couldn't assess the damage because the garage was locked. They left a card for Jerry to call when he returned. Jan's naked body was still hanging in the garage at the time. Jerry had narrowly escaped detection. Police eventually found Jan's red and white Rambler at a rest stop off Interstate 5 in Albany. The car was locked and her keys weren't found. Investigators looked at a print off the hubcap, but they had nothing to compare it to. There was no evidence found in the car and there was no explanation for why Jan's car was found at that location. Investigators searched ditches and other areas around the freeway, but they didn't find anything. There were no witnesses. This is slightly odd to me because the two men who initially stopped to help Jan were never mentioned during the course of the investigation. I have to assume they never came forward and police never found a match to one of them based on the fingerprint taken off the hubcap. Because there were 50 miles between where Linda Lawson disappeared and where Jan disappeared, no immediate connection was made between the two cases. After the murder of Jan Whitney, Jerry had a brief cooling off period for about four months. That cooling off period would come to an end in March of 1969 when Jerry would abduct and murder another young woman. Karen Sprinker was 19 years old and a student at Oregon State. She was valedictorian of her high school and a member of the National Honor Society and a National Merit Scholarship finalist. She had dreams of becoming a doctor just like her father. In March 1969, Karen was home from college for spring break. She made lunch and shopping plans with her mother on March 27th. Karen's mom waited for her to arrive, but Karen never showed up for lunch. Karen's mom called her dad, as well as her friends, but no one had seen or heard from Karen since that morning. Karen never returned home that night, so her parents reported her missing. 
Police found Karen's locked car in the Myron Frank rooftop parking lot. There was no blood or semen found in the car. The only prints found on the vehicle belonged to Karen and her family. After canvassing the area, investigators found two girls who witnessed a large woman standing in the Myron Frank parking lot adjusting her undergarments. She was wearing high heels and a dress, but the girls believed she was actually a man dressed like a woman given her size and the fiddling with her clothes. Jerry would later tell investigators he abducted Karen after she parked her car in the rooftop parking lot using a toy pistol. He took Karen to his home and he raped her. Then he forced her to pose for photos. He looped a noose around Karen's neck before hanging her up in his garage. He left her to die while he went inside the house to eat. Jerry later had sex with Karen's corpse and cut off her breasts to use as paperweights. He stuffed her bra with paper towels so he wouldn't get blood all over his car. Then he tossed her body off the Bundy Bridge into the Long Tom River, about 12 miles south of Corvallis. On April 21st, 1969, Jerry was prowling the Portland State University parking garage in downtown Portland when he attempted to kidnap Sharon Wood. She was wearing a bright red dress with high heel pumps. Sharon was having trouble finding her car when she felt a tap on her shoulder. She turned around and Jerry flashed his toy pistol at her. Sharon screamed and kicked Jerry while she tried to wrestle the gun away from him. When he tried to cover her mouth, Karen bit him. He then beat her head against the cement. Sharon eventually passed out from the beating and Jerry fled after being startled by a car passing by. Just two days later, Jerry approached 22-year-old Linda Saley in the parking lot of the Lloyd Center shopping mall in Portland. Jerry had a fake police badge, and he used the ruse of questioning Linda about recent shoplifting cases at the mall. Linda was last seen around 5.30 p.m., leaving a jewelry store after she returned a birthday present for her boyfriend. She was planning to meet her boyfriend between 6.30 and 7 at the YMCA where he worked as a lifeguard. When Linda failed to show up, her boyfriend drove to her apartment, but no one answered the door. He immediately reported her missing to police, and investigators took Linda's disappearance seriously from the very beginning because they were aware of the other three cases. They searched the Lloyd Center parking lot and found Linda's locked red Volkswagen Beetle. There were no signs of a struggle, and just like Karen and Jan's cases, there was no physical evidence found inside Linda's car. Jerry later told investigators after he abducted Linda, he drove from Portland to his home in Salem. He then raped and strangled Linda in his garage. Jerry played with Linda's body and decided to try and make her body jump by driving an electrical current through her body. Much to his dismay, Jerry was unsuccessful. When he was done playing with her, he tied Jan's body to a car transmission with nylon cord and dumped it into the Long Tom River. In May 1969, only a few weeks later, a fisherman came across the body of Linda Saley. Her body was tied to a car transmission with nylon cord and copper wire. Investigators were unable to determine whether Linda was raped due to the amount of time her body was in the water. The coroner noted two needle marks on her body, one on each side of the rib cage, about three to four inches under her armpit. The coroner ruled Linda's cause of death as strangulation based on the petechial hemorrh hemorrhaging around her neck, lungs, and eyes, her fractured hyoid bone, and some type of ligature mark around her neck. Linda's body was found 70 miles from where she was abducted. 
Divers searched the Long Tom River after locating Linda's body, and they soon discovered the body of Karen Sprinker a few days later. Karen's body was found 50 feet from the location where Linda Saley's body was found. The coroner ruled Karen's cause of death as strangulation, likely with some type of rope. There were indications she was sexually assaulted, but the coroner couldn't be definitive due to the amount of time Karen's body had been in the water. Due to the close proximity of the bodies to the Oregon State campus and the age of the women, detectives began canvassing and interviewing OSU students. They found three or four women who mentioned recently receiving random calls from a stranger. The caller asked for each of the women by their first name, but none of the women knew who the caller was. The caller described himself as a Vietnam veteran, and he asked the women if they wanted to meet in person, but understandably, all of the women declined. Investigators also found several witnesses who described a, quote, pudgy red-haired man with freckles, end quote, hanging around the campus. According to some witnesses, the man had actually attempted to force a few OSU students into his car, but he was unsuccessful. Detectives then received a call from a woman who had gone on a date with a man who talked about Karen and Linda Saley, including mentioning that they were raped, which was not public knowledge at the time. Police asked this woman to agree to a second date with the man. When Jerry arrived at the meeting location, he was greeted by detectives. Once Jerry was on their radar, detectives began to dig deeper into his past. They learned Jerry lived in the same neighborhood where Linda Slauson disappeared from in 1967. At the time of Jan Whitney's disappearance, detectives learned Jerry was driving from Salem to Lebanon along Interstate 5 for work, meaning he constantly drove past the area where Jan's car was found. They also discovered that Jerry lived just blocks away from the Myron Frank department store where Karen Sprinker was abducted. And in 1969, Jerry worked in Halsey, Oregon, which was just six miles from the Long Tom River. Detectives paid a visit to Jerry on May 26, 1969. They didn't have a search warrant, but Jerry showed them around the property anyway. Investigators noticed that there were knots in Jerry's garage that were tied in a similar fashion as those that were used to bind Karen and Linda's bodies. Jerry cut off pieces of the nylon rope for investigators to take with them. One of the detectives also secretly took a piece of copper wire from the garage to compare with what was found on Karen and Linda's bodies. On May 28, 1969, police obtained a warrant to search Jerry's 1963 Green Comet station wagon. Unfortunately, Jerry told investigators his son had left the window down while they went through the car wash. Surveillance was ordered for Jerry and his station wagon. Two days later, on May 30th, investigators arrested Jerry after he was caught fleeing toward the Canadian border. At the time of his arrest, Jerry was wearing silky women's underwear. Police searched Jerry's house after he was arrested and found hundreds of keys, some of which fit Jan's car and apartment. They found pictures of Jerry wearing a black lace slip, as well as pictures of various women in Jerry's toolbox. In the attic, investigators found 40 pairs of high heels in all different sizes, colors, and styles. They found 15 bras in a range of sizes, as well as lacy slips, panties, and girdles. The most damning thing they found in Jerry's house were Karen's breast paperweights, which were sitting on the mantle in the Brutus's living room. On June 2, 1969, Jerry was charged with first-degree murder for the death of Karen Sprinker. 
Jerry entered a plea of not guilty and not guilty by reason of insanity. Jerry was examined by seven different psychiatrists and psychologists. Each mental health professional determined Jerry was not psychotic. He knew right from wrong, despite being characterized as antisocial and deviant. On June 27th, Jerry changed his plea to guilty, just three days before his trial was set to begin for the murders of Karen Sprinker, Jan Whitney, and Linda Saley. Unfortunately, Jerry couldn't be charged with Linda Slauson's murder, as her body was never found. When Jerry pled guilty, he admitted to abducting and strangling Karen, Jan, and Linda Saley with a leather strap. Jerry received three life sentences to run consecutively, which meant he would serve at least 36 years in prison. In September 1969, Jerry's wife Darcy went on trial as an accomplice in the death of Karen Sprinker. She testified in her own defense and told the jury she spent most of March 27th away from the family home. The jury deliberated for seven hours before acquitting Darcy. Shortly after her acquittal, Darcy filed for divorce from Jerry. She changed both her name and the names of her children, and she moved away from the Oregon area. It has been widely debated what, if anything, Darcy knew about Jerry's crimes. Jerry was denied parole in June 1995, January 1999, 2003, and August 2005. On March 28, 2006, Jerry Brutus was found dead in his prison cell. He had died of liver cancer. Jerry spent 37 years in prison, which at the time was the longest ever incarceration for an inmate in the Oregon Department of Corrections. And that is the story of Jerry Brutus, aka the Lust Killer and Shoe Fetish Slayer. Let me know your thoughts and comments via social media or email at truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. And if you want to see the sources for this episode, please check out our website at truecrimecatlawyer.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.